Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, de-escalating hate here at home. This is not who we are as Canadians. The Prime Minister speaks out against rising incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in the wake of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Coming up, we'll get reaction from Israel's ambassador to Canada about the Prime Minister's words and the international calls for a ceasefire. And... How many more times will Canadians have to say enough is enough? We'll hear from a human rights group that says Canada's call for a humanitarian pause is only abetting the deaths of Palestinians in Gaza. Plus... Welcome to a new day for healthcare in Alberta. Overhauling healthcare in Alberta. The opposition says it opens the door to privatization and chaos. We'll speak with the province's health minister. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The Prime Minister started this Wednesday by speaking out against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, disheartened by hateful comments and actions that have emerged in this country since the start of the Israel-Hamas conflict one month ago. We're seeing right now a rise in anti-Semitism that is terrifying. Molotov cocktails thrown at synagogues, Uh, horrific uh, threats of violence, targeting Jewish businesses, targeting Jewish daycares with hate. This needs to stop. This is not who we are as Canadians. This is something that is not acceptable in Canada, period. And period. The rise of Islamophobia we're seeing across this country and around the world is also unacceptable. The uh, expressions of hate against uh, Muslims, against Palestinians, against anyone waving a Palestinian flag, this is unacceptable. This is not who we are as Canadians. And if Canada can't figure this out, Tell me what corner of the world is going to figure this out. Now, it has been a month since Hamas unleashed its coordinated attack on Israel, which triggered the conflict that we're now seeing in Gaza. And joining us in studio is Israel's ambassador to Canada, Ido Moed. Uh, Ambassador, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Uh, Listen, I wanted to begin with what we heard from the Prime Minister today, which we played for people at home. The the comments he made about this rising incidence of hate, uh, among them anti-Semitic attacks against the Jewish community in this country. What do you make of the Prime Minister taking the time today to specifically address that? I think what he's referring to is indeed what we all see is a rise in the number and the the seriousness of anti-Semitic attacks against uh, Jews, against Jewish institutions, and so on. Um, And I think the rise in hate and hate-related crimes is worrying for everyone, everyone, everywhere around the world, not just here in Canada, also elsewhere. So it's very important, I think, that the Prime Minister draws a line and, 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 you know, ring on the bell for everybody to be aware that this is a very serious issue. 
Um, what we see is the result of this atrocious attack that took place in the Gaza Strip, that um, there is a sort of a rise of um, anti-Israel and anti-Jewish sentiment that is really hard to fathom where it comes from, but we see it on the streets. So it's a swastika that was carried in front of uh, Parliament Hill on this weekend, during the weekend. Uh, Molotov cocktail being thrown at the synagogue, death threat calls and things of the like. It's very dangerous. We have to be very careful about that. We have to understand that we have to eradicate not just Hamas infrastructure in the Gaza Strip, but also those of us who feel that hate and incitement for violence is a tool to achieve any kind of a goal. We don't accept that as a society, and I think it's very commendable that the Prime Minister referred to that. Now, yesterday, you, you did put out a release. You acknowledged the fact that it's been some 30 days since Hamas uh, did the attack on Israel. And in your statement, you say, in the Jewish tradition, after a 30-day mourning period, we restart our routine and return to where we left off. However, given the extent of the Hamas atrocities, there is no returning to normal. Uh, can you expand on that? Uh, I would like to share with you and the viewers this, this image. Here we have 240 hostages that are being held in the Gaza Strip. Children, elderly people, sick people, pregnant women, all of these people have witnessed uh, a massacre in front of their eyes. They cannot forget, even if and more than 30 days already passed, and we cannot forget. We cannot forget them. They have to get their liberty back immediately and unconditionally. And we also have to remember that according to Jewish tradition, when, when people die, we have to bring them to burial as soon as possible, but we have not completed the identification of the bodies yet because some of them were, um, were, were, were uh, damaged in, to such an extent that we don't even know who is who. So we cannot go back to normal, uh, not in terms of our Jewish belief and not in terms of our security in Israel. What we've undergone is this barbaric attack that reminded us of the Holocaust, of the fact that the Jewish people have to make sure that in our nation country we keep ourselves safe. How do we do that? First of all, we take Hamas out of the equation completely and entirely. Then we'll have to think how we internally arrange our security, but we also think about the day after, about how do we continue to live with our neighbors. We don't have a conflict with our neighbors. We have a conflict with Hamas terrorist organization. And so after following the Abraham Accords, we uh, continue our dialogue also with other Arab countries as we speak to address the Palestinian issue in a way that will make sure that we live side by side in one, in one day in peace. But at the same time, there will be no room for terrorist organizations such as the Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and that either players in the region, such as Iran and the Iran proxies like Hezbollah, will not inflict more damage on Israel and Israeli society. And we have to remember that in Israel we have a lot of uh, non-Jews who are also part of society and also believe in Israel as their homeland. And so in our effort to preserve and build peace in the region, we want to make sure that all parts of society are part of that. And this is what we are striving for. But at this moment, first and foremost, we have to take care of our security. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you, as you say that, uh, destroying Hamas infrastructure, getting rid of what Israel sees as a, as a threat to its existence, 
there are now, uh, as you know, human rights groups pointing to the thousands of lives lost, uh, estimated to be more than 10,000 Palestinian lives lost in Gaza, among them some 3,000 children. There are now calls for the International Criminal Court to investigate the actions that are taking place in Gaza right now. How do you respond to that criticism when people hear your argument against Hamas, but are also looking at the human toll saying that this is too much? Israel abides by international law, and specifically by the law of armed conflict. I think that many people who use this argument are not fully aware what it means, what it actually entails. So the issue of proportionality and the distinction that you have to make between combatants and non-combatants, people don't really understand how the reality, what it looks like. So let's take, for example, Hamas not being dressed in uniforms. Uh, let's take the fact that they hide themselves among the most densely populated areas, underneath hospitals, within church, within uh, um, uh, mosques and schools, and shoot from those areas. The fact that the numbers that they bring out and the Hamas-run um, so-called Ministry of Health published numbers which are wrong, uh, entirely inflated then we know that Hamas's aim is to create an image of Israel doing something that, is, is, that it is not doing. We mourn the suffering. We don't want to have to inflict any harm on anybody around us. Until October the 6th, Israel was working very hard to um, promise a better future for Palestinians also in the Gaza Strip by allowing some 20,000 people to come to work in Israel. Now we know that among those 20,000 people were also terrorists who came to learn how it, what Israel looks like, how the kibbutzim look like from the inside, and they provided that intelligence to the Hamas. So the, the issue is really how do we deal with a neighbor that also houses a monster like Hamas? The Palestinian, Palestinian people are, are our neighbor. We want to live in peace with them. They have among them a monster, a very dangerous one, that actually booby-trapped the whole of the Gaza Strip. And that's very dangerous. So we have to um, defuse this bomb, to dismantle this bomb completely, and to move this reign of terror out of the Gaza Strip. Then we'll find a way also to rebuild also our part and hopefully also the Palestinian side. They have to do it together. But we abide by the international law entirely and completely. There is a lot of transparency. And I think when we speak about that, we have to understand exactly what it entails and uh, how it is applied. And Israel invites anybody to understand that. We can go further into detail in that if you want, but uh, we are very open and transparent about that. But to my understanding, you have basically uh, said that the people cannot enter Gaza to, to, to observe amongst them the United Nations. We are not preventing anybody from uh, observing within Gaza Strip whoever calls the shots there is the Hamas, it's not us. So what we are trying to uh, monitor is the, the entry of assistance into the Gaza Strip because also according to international law, Israel is obliged to facilitate that as long as it is not uh, providing our enemy uh, support in their battle against us. We have reason to believe that Hamas steals parts of that uh, assistance for its own use 
and therefore we are very careful in monitoring it. We are, as you may know, we've uh, allowed some 800 trucks already to move into the Gaza Strip. Uh, we provide water for the southern part of the Gaza Strip as much as we can and as much as that infrastructure was not damaged by Hamas itself. itself. So we are trying to provide for this movement also of exit of people out of Gaza Strip as much as we can within the constraints of this war against Hamas. I'm quickly running out of time, but I, I do need to, to ask you, because the prime minister of this country continues to call for a humanitarian pause, perhaps to release hostages, to, to get aid to, to people in Gaza. What is your response to that call? We're trying to create the conditions for this to happen, for the exit of people from the Gaza Strip, as many as possible, and for the entry of assistance. You may have seen the images yesterday of Israeli tanks that actually created a humanitarian corridor for people from the northern part of the Gaza Strip to go to the southern part because they were shot at by Hamas. So actually Israeli soldiers risked their lives to protect Palestinians to move to safer areas. We are very much uh, aware of the needs, the humanitarian needs of the people in the Gaza Strip, and we'll try to do as much as we can to protect those who are not involved and target only who, those who are responsible for the terrorist attacks. Ambassador, I regret, regret to say that we're out of time, but, but I do appreciate the time today. Thank you for that. Thank you. Meanwhile, on the Hill today, Justice for All Canada held another news conference calling on the Prime Minister to support a ceasefire in the conflict, pointing to the thousands of lives already lost in the last four weeks of fighting. Ahmed Al-Qadi is with Justice for All Canada, a human rights group that speaks out for persecuted Muslim minority communities around the world. Mr. Al-Qadi, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Now, in calling for this ceasefire, you say that the Trudeau government has essentially helped in the, quote, indiscriminate murder of civilians. Uh, can you expand on that? Yes. So when you have uh, the Israeli government, right after October 7th, uh, make multiple claims, such as Palestinians are human animals, uh, that they're going to flatten Gaza, that um, uh, there are no innocent civilians in Gaza, that they're going to decimate Gaza through any means necessary, that they will do anything in order to win. And then you have, you know, our Canadian government uh, openly and unequivocally providing their support and abetting in this claim, then there's no question about it. They're complicit and they have enabled the murder of over 10,000 civilians, 10,000 innocent civilians, over 4,000 children. Uh, they have enabled the and, and abetted the cutting of electricity food, fuel, water, all sorts of necessities to life. Hospitals in Gaza right now are on the brink of collapse. There are hospitals that are so short on fuel that they can't even, they had to suspend their uh, their their surgery units. They can't operate on, on, on emergency sur surgeries anymore because of, their, of a lack of fuel. Similarly, with Canada's $21 million in funding uh, in, in arms sales to the Israeli government, we are actively complicit in weapons that are being used to target civilians indiscriminately, and it must stop. The Prime Minister, though, has called for a humanitarian pause uh, to, to, to get aid through to the region, to uh, de-escalate the situation, and to listen to him, to get all parties involved, basically exploring a two-state solution again. Does that mean anything? Uh, truthfully, right now, a two-state solution does not mean anything. I'm a Palestinian myself, uh, as, as well as a, an employee for Justice for All Canada. The reason 
a two-state solution right now would not mean anything is because that is a long-term that is a long-term solution that is step 10. when you're talking about a humanitarian pause you're essentially talking about a coffee break for the civilians who have done nothing wrong who are victims of a war crime that is collective punishment done nothing wrong coffee break for you to get your energy back and then jump right back into being butchered let's be practical here we need a legitimate ceasefire to cease hostilities and prevent further loss of civilian life. The Israeli fire. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, you, you. as you're saying that, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he he says that there can be no pause, no ceasefire of any kind until Hamas releases the hostages that are still in their custody. Uh, what would you say to that condition? So when you're talking about, again, there, there's been uh, discussion surrounding the fact that, you know, Hamas is, Hamas is not cooperating, uh, that the Israeli government uh, is doing everything it can to prevent loss of civilian life. The Israeli government currently does not care about, uh, does not care about eradicating Hamas. When you're talking about a government that, again, has eliminated all sources of life in a city, and has indiscriminately bombed civilians, we have to, as educated as a country that stands for human rights and is a peacekeeping nation, we have to open our eyes and, and face the music and recognize that the Israeli government does not care, currently care about eradicating Hamas. They're just collectively punishing a group of people, 2.2 million people, half of them children, for just being born in Gaza. I'm not here to speak as a spokesperson for Hamas. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 yeah, we're not, we're not justice for all. Is not, we're not spokesperson for Hamas, so we can't speak to any of the politics surrounding the region. But we know that the solution right now is not to continue bombarding civilians and, and, and killing indiscriminately. So, what would you like to see from Canada and from Canadians at this point, then? So, Canadians, seventy-one percent of Canadians in a recent poll have called uh, for the government to push for a ceasefire. This is not justice for all. Is not a monolith. We're joined by 700 organizations globally who have called for ceasefires. Uh, many within the United Nations, including the Human Rights Commissioner, has called for a ceasefire. Um, we'd like to condemn, uh, commend, excuse me, the NDP uh, for unequivocally, uh, unequivocally calling for a ceasefire as a party, as a party policy. What we need to see is, first of all, an immediate ceasefire. Secondly, Canada must re-establish and recognize the ICC's uh, uh, jurisdiction over investigating the Israeli government for crimes in for war crimes in Palestine. Thirdly, Canada must review its arms sales, must review its arms sales to the Israeli government so that our country and our taxpayer dollars are not complicit in, in, uh, in, in the murder of civilians. Ahmed Al-Qadi, I appreciate the time. Thank you for this. If I could just uh, uh, follow up uh, uh, reiterate a point that I made earlier. The reason I said that, uh, I just want to be clear, the reason I said that the uh, two-state solution is not viable right now is because that's step number 10. Right now, we can't even establish step number one, which is establishing uh, a humanitarian corridor, ending the siege on Gaza, and pushing for a ceasefire. Once we can hold the Israeli government accountable for its actions, uh, for its actions, for its complicit murder, for its deliberate murder of civilians, then we can talk about long-term solutions. But right now, we need the government to take its head truthfully out of the clouds, come back down to earth, and look at tangible, achievable short-term solutions that will prevent uh, the loss of civilian life. Thank you. Um, Ahmed Al-Qaeda, again, thank you for the time. Thank you. Take care. 
to Alberta now, where the UCP government announced today a massive overhaul of the province's health care system. Alberta Health Services is currently the country's largest single provincial health care authority, but it will now be broken up into four separate bodies to overlook areas that include acute care, primary care, continuing care, and mental health and addictions. Take a listen now to Premier Danielle Smith. From the very beginning of our government's mandate, improving health care at every level has been the top of our list of priorities. And with delays affecting the whole system, the urgency of the challenge can't be overstated. Wait times for life-saving surgeries, routine care, and mental health treatment are far too long. Alberta's health system isn't working the way it should and the way Albertans deserve. And fixing it is critically important to improving Albertans' quality of life. And improvements must begin with Alberta Health Services, the largest provincially integrated health system in the country. Country. While all Albertans can and should be proud of our frontline professionals, the structure behind them is not setting them up for success. Well, with more, we're now joined by Alberta's Health Minister, Adriana Lagrange. Minister, thank you for being with us. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, the Premier says, as it is, AHS was not setting up Albertans for success. How does this new structure change that, do you think? Will it actually bring things about like primary care for, for Albertans or, or reducing waiting times? Well, ab absolutely, because I wouldn't have brought it forward if I didn't think that that would actually be the case. Uh, what, <clears throat> what I was seeing um, is is a lack of structure within AHS. Um, it had gotten beyond its its scope, what it was originally intended for. Um, I've spoken to previous ministers of health who indicated that really when it was first formed, it was about looking after acute care, which is the hospital system. And unfortunately, it grew beyond that and beyond its ability to manage all of the different moving parts that it was looking into. So, um, and I'll give you an example, because currently AHS oversees roughly about 20 to 25% of continuing care, um, but it holds all the contracts with all of the other continuing care providers. So it was a bit of an inherent uh, conflict of interest that we need to correct. Okay, now to my understanding though, and correct me if I'm wrong here, th this overhaul could cost as much as $85 million. Would that money have been better invested in creating more medical schools, hiring more healthcare workers or better compensation packages to attract people into the healthcare industry. Well, we're doing all of those things, Michael, already. We've allocated um, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, workforce strategies and uh, improving the overall healthcare system as a whole. We've added approximately a billion dollars over the next three years to continuing care. But uh, what uh, those dollars that are allocated, in fact, I have to correct the record because the dollars that have been put out there as a possible um, uh, cost for this transformation is just that. We wanted to make sure that we had funds in the event that we needed to uh, utilize them as we set up for organizations, et cetera. But uh, we used the cost of the 2008 uh, transformation to AHS as kind of a guideline um, moving forward. So really what we're looking to do is make sure that we have four structures that are laser focused on providing quality care in primary care, continuing care, um, mental health and addictions, and of course, acute care.
Okay. Now, you, you're also, according to reports, looking at selling off the Capital Care Group as well as the Care West uh, entity as well. And, you know, it had me thinking about Ontario because Ontario back in the 90s, as you know, privatized its nursing and long-term care homes. That was a way to improve health care at the time. But COVID proved that disastrous because that is where Ontario saw the majority of COVID deaths. How will you navigate those concerns uh, about privatization, about selling off those entities and the outcomes that they will create? Well, the information that the NDP shared was inaccurate. Uh, they had a document that was an early, early draft of, of uh, recommendations that were brought forward to me. I, in fact, um, uh, kiboshed those recommendations because really um, AHS is providing service uh, to those continuing care residents. But the inherent conflict of interest where they are both a service provider as well as holding all the contracts with the other continuing care service providers makes it really difficult in that space. So what we're looking to do is um, set up an organization that will oversee all of continuing care. Uh, we have um, another acute care provider, which is Covenant Health, who also um, has continuing care spaces that they look after. So I see this as AHS being able to do both acute care and continuing care, but they will no longer be both a service provider and a procurer of uh, services. And what about concerns about increased privatization? As you look to overhaul how healthcare is delivered in the province, uh, of course, that is a continuing issue, whether it's in Alberta or Ontario or British Columbia, how much or how big a role rather private providers will actually play? We have been very clear that we are not privatizing healthcare. We have a excellent um, uh, healthcare system uh, in, in the terms that, that it is publicly funded. It's publicly funded public healthcare. We are not going to change that, um, but we do know that uh, there are uh, opportunities right across the province to be innovative, to be creative, and to do things differently. And I'm hearing from doctors, nurses, uh, frontline workers that are telling me this change is long overdue and they are excited about the possibilities. At the end of the day, Minister, uh, what will tell you that this reorganization has been a success? How will you judge that? Well, um, I will judge it by the fact that there will be improved services to everyday Albertans. Um, Albertans, uh, once again, will be at the center of the decision-making. Uh, they are the patients, they are the customers, and we will provide excellent customer service. And and the other area that I really want to see and uh, great focus put on is that our healthcare workers are valued, that they have a good work-life balance, that we are able to attract and retain the best healthcare professionals. We have some of the best healthcare professionals in all of Canada, in all the world. I want them to uh, stay here in Alberta, but I also want to attract more because we know we need more. Minister LaGrange, I know it's been a busy day. Really appreciate the time this evening. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you. Time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. The Rafah border crossing between Gaza and Egypt, through which evacuations have been carried out, has been closed due to unspecified security circumstances. According to U.S. officials, the crossing will reopen at regular intervals to allow aid in and foreign nationals out. 
On Tuesday, 75 Canadians, permanent residents and those with ties to this country left Gaza through the Rafah crossing. Global Affairs Canada saying there are still more than 400 people registered with the department looking to get out, but Canada does not control when and how many can leave. The Supreme Court is being asked to rule on a treaty case worth tens of billions of dollars. Back in 1850, Anishinaabe leaders signed two treaties that ceded land from Lake Superior to Hudson Bay. But that same treaty promised a financial annuity that was supposed to be enriched over time. Instead, it has been stuck at $4 a person for nearly 150 years. So, an alliance of First Nations in Northern Ontario is looking for a financial redress worth upwards of $126 billion. I declare the motion defeated. And on Parliament Hill today, an NDP motion calling for the removal of the GST from all heating sources failed to pass in the House. The final vote, 292 against 30. The Liberals, the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois voting against the motion, while the NDP and the Greens supported it. Climate delay liberals and climate deny conservatives will back the profits of big oil again. So how can the Prime Minister and the leader of the Conservative Party justify voting against this? The federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh from earlier today. Well, that is our program for this Wednesday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow, but up next, Estebejan avec l'essentiel.